Could Alberta leave Canada? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jason Sorens. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jason Sorens. Jason is director of the Center for Ethics in Business and Governance at St. Anselm College. His research interests are state politics and policy, fiscal federalism, and secessionism. His work has been published in International Studies Quarterly, Comparative Political Studies, Journal of Political Geography, State Politics and Policy Quarterly, and other academic journals. He wrote a book called Secessionism, Identity, Interest, and Strategy. So we can actually say he wrote the book on the topic. Jason, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Jason, in each episode, we have a question that takes us wherever the answers lead us. Our question today is, could Alberta leave Canada? But before that, I'd like to talk to you about secessionism more broadly, and and then we can zero in. So I thought we could kick us off with a quote. And of course, in this case, the quote's actually from you. So I'll read you back to yourself. You say in your article, Legal Regimes for Secession, Applying Moral Theory and Empirical Findings, you said, Secessionism is a normatively difficult issue because contemporary cases of secession always involve conflicts in which some rights holders find their legitimate interests frustrated. No secession referendum on a scale sufficient to create an internationally recognized state has ever succeeded with fully 100% support. So I'd like you to drill into that a little bit more, but one of the things that jumped out at me immediately is... Typically, on both sides of a secession issue, there's always people frustrated and they always want to reduce things to slogans. But I like how you said that secession frustrates legitimate interests and that happens on both sides. So so what what, what legitimate interests are being frustrated and going go to both sides? Well, most of us believe in the concept of consent of the governed, uh, that uh, a government derives its legitimacy and its um, right to boss us around if it, if it does enjoy such a right from some act of consent, uh, and so, and it has to be sort of um, an ongoing willingness, at least, of the of the right. public to accept this government. And so, if you're a person who supports secession, um, you likely think that the current government isn't fully legitimate, or at least that there would be a different government that would be more legitimate, and that if if you're not allowed to uh, transfer your loyalties to that new government. In a sense, your um, your rights are being violated, or certainly your your legitimate interests are being frustrated. You're not able to um, be governed by the government of your consent. Um, by the same token, though, if you oppose secession, uh, maybe you think that the policies that are going to be adopted by the new state are going to be worse than those of the existing state. Uh, then you feel that your interests are being frustrated. Um, you're not able to um, continue to consent to the government that you would prefer. Instead, you're going to be forced to obey a new government um, that, that you don't agree with. Uh, so we have a difficult choice here. We have to decide um, what to do because you can't please everybody. And I'll do a follow-up quote to that from the same essay. You said, secession always brings along non-consenters and prohibiting secession always suppresses the desires of some citizens to govern themselves separately, desires that are not inherently wrong. Could you get into that a little bit more? Because again, I want to bring it back to the point that I find that when you talk about any issue that touches on secession, you have people charged on both sli- sides. There's slogans being thrown around. Of course, each side always tries to paint the picture that the other side is just stupid, quite frankly, and doesn't get why such and such should happen, stay in Canada or leave Canada or whatever country we're talking about. So the, like as you said, on both sides, we have desires that aren't inherently wrong. Beyond the idea that people want to be under the, the rule, if you will, of the government of their choosing, what other kind of desires are usually at play when we have this melting pot of issues? Well, let's set aside this idea of mystical nationalism, right? The idea that you are a member of some a nation, whether you like it or not, and right. that you have a duty to be uh, to be governed by that nation, whether you like it or not, whether you even conceive of yourself as being a member of that nation, right? Uh, I don't think that idea uh, would be defended by very many people today, at least uh, not in the West. Now, um, once we get rid of that idea, we have to think about what what government is really for, and in the kind of broadly liberal tradition, we think that government is really for the citizens, right? It's uh, the the government is supposed to be a servant, not a master. Right. And so, um, you know, when we think about that, 
the the idea then is that um, you know we're we as citizens are in a sense customers of the government, right? The government is providing some services maybe that that we don't think can, we can provide for ourselves through another means, right? Through corporations or through nonprofits or through families or whatever. And so we have governments to provide some of those services. Well, um, if we're the customers, then ultimately we should have the say about who's providing those services. And one way we can have a little bit of a say is through elections. But elections have the have the feature also that uh, some people are going to be frustrated um, in their desires, and others are going to um, to be happier. Um, but you know, with with elections, we we also have a, a sort of binary choice in many cases. Uh, we don't get the the perfect politicians that we want. We don't get the policies that that we as individuals exactly want, even if our preferred candidates win. And so um, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with wanting a different set of policies, with wanting a different mix of public services, with wanting even a different government to be providing uh, those things. Um, ultimately, uh, what should govern is our preferences. But because people have different preferences, uh, we end up with this conundrum of how we can satisfy, the greatest number of people. Um, and in, in secession uh, disputes, what's often at issue is who gets to decide, right? So what is the framework for elections, for democracy, right? Am I going to be subject to um, a large group of people who may be very different from me, who don't share a lot of the same values, maybe? Um, or am I going to be part of a smaller group that's more similar to me and, and going to share more of my values? And over the long run, maybe I expect better policies and better services out of that smaller group. And that would be a reason for me to support secession. Um, and uh, and so the, then the question becomes, well, um, what do we do with that demand? How can we how can we satisfy that demand reasonably? Um, because it doesn't look as if we can simply suppress it and say no. No matter what, no matter what your preferences are, no matter how bad off you are in the existing state of affairs, you're part of this mystical nation and you must be forced to submit to it. Right. Would you? So ultimately, would you say it's fair fair to say that when it comes to the issue of let's say again, and we'll get into more details later, of course let's take Alberta leaving Confederation or leaving Canada, that people ultimately use whether they're yay or nay on that issue as kind of a, a shorthand stand-in for all the other desires that either side would be represented by. That people should not really look at each other as, you know, siding one way or the other simply because they literally like the idea of Alberta just being either part of Confederation or not. But that, again, that's just a stand-in or a symbol of all the other issues underneath that. Exactly. And... What we find is that when um, when we want to figure out why people vote for independence or for parties that support independence, uh, usually what matters is instrumental consideration. So means to end. How can I how can I get a government that is better um, by my lights? And that usually has to do with things like ideological differences. Right. So. You know, just to take Alberta as an example again, uh, in my research, the 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 tool that I use to the 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 variable that I use to predict um, secessionism um, on the basis of ideological difference, according to that variable, Alberta is the most conservative region in the Western world. <laughs> so it's very ideologically different from the rest of Canada, and that could be a reason why. Um, Albertans might favor independence if they feel they're not getting that mix of policies from the Canadian federal government. Actually, I heard you say exactly that point on another radio show that I was listening to on in preparation for this. Can you can you get into that a bit more and how that's measured? Because you did on that other show. That was very interesting to me because someone hearing that Alberta is one of the most conservative regions in the West, that, that might strike them as very odd. You know, Some people have this idea of Canada in their head is not so conservative. On the one hand, on the other hand, they might say something like, wait, you're saying it's more conservative relative speaking than Texas I'm not saying I'm saying that but people might say that so how how is that measured and how do we actually get to that sort of conclusion yeah so the the measure is relative to the country that you're in and so I look at uh, 
the percentage of the vote going to parties of the left, according to whatever the, the country spectrum is and using expert uh, judgments from other political scientists. And, uh, and so I look at percentage of the vote uh, for parties of the left in the province or the region minus percentage of the vote for parties of the left in the country as a whole at the last nationwide election. Right, so by looking at a nationwide election, you're really um, controlling for perhaps any differences in party ideologies in different regions. Right, so in the U.S., traditionally, maybe Democrats in Mississippi were more conservative than Democrats in Connecticut. But if you're looking at a presidential election, right, there's a single <laughs> there's a single candidate uh, that's running nationwide, and uh, and so you're not um, you know you're not getting any um, Kind of interference from different pro different programs or different ideologies in different regions, and so when you look at that measure, by that measure, Alberta is um, more than thirty percentage points less left wing, or if you prefer, more right wing than the rest of Canada, uh, and so it's farther from its country uh, than any other region in the Western world. Wow. Okay. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we zone in Alberta specifically, but I thought, think that's a great thing to use as a jump off point for later. I, I want to move on to something else uh, in on our way to sort of uh, establishing what we're talking about here with secession is more broadly. In another essay, you wrote secession risk and fiscal federalism. You address some of the conditions that aggravate or mitigate the risk of secessionist sentiments ultimately, and you introduce the difference between fiscal federalism and political feather, federalism. And I thought I have some follow-up questions to that, but I thought that before we go any further, it'd actually be interesting to have you uh, establish and elaborate what the difference between those two kinds of federalism are. Yeah, so federalism, some people think of as an alternative to secession. Maybe you decentralize power to to regions to um, reduce voters' interest in, in full independence. Right? It's a kind of compromise. Well, political federalism might involve um, giving some symbolic control uh, to regions, maybe letting them control cultural issues, um, social issues, run their own educational systems where they can teach the regional language, things like that. Um, and sometimes it can involve also some regional policymaking role in the central government, right? So you might have a Senate that represents the, the regions. But fiscal federalism is rarer, and you really only find it in its sort of full-fledged form in three countries, Canada, Switzerland, and the U.S. And fiscal federalism uh, means that the regions also largely raise their own taxes and uh, engage in their own economic regulations. So it basically decentralizes economic policy uh, to the regional level. Um, and so the, the question I had in that paper is, why is this so rare? <laughs> because right. economists often think that this is a good thing. If you have fiscal federalism, well, um, you know, regions sort of have to stand on their own two feet. They're not going to be irresponsible. Whereas if they're funded by the central government, a regional government might just sort of overspend in hopes that the central government's going to pick up the tab. But if they have to raise it out of their own taxes, well, that's, you know, they have to go back to their voters and make a case for, for raising taxes if they want to spend a lot of money. Um, and, it, you know, fiscal federalism also allows regions to compete with each other, which might um, weed out some inefficiencies. It allows people to move to a region that has a, a mix of public services and taxes. It's more to their liking. So there seem to be lots of advantages to fiscal federalism, according to economists, but it's very rare in the real world. And so why is that? Right. And, uh, and my answer actually has to do with secession risk. Uh, so I argue that um, where central governments are really worried that regions could use their economic powers to pursue an agenda of independence, they're not going to give up those economic powers. Um, because once a region can tax, well, then it can, it can spend on what it wants, right? Whereas if... Right. The central government controls the purse strings. It can say, "Well, you better, you know, spend only on what we want you to spend on, right? Don't go, uh, you know, in the extreme uh, limit. Don't go buying weapons and creating your own army, <laughs> right? right. Um, but certainly, also maybe, you know, don't go opening up diplomatic embassies overseas, as the government of Catalonia was trying to do. Um, you know, don't try to." Uh, 
create your own police force. Don't try to create your own judicial system. Right? These might be things that the the, the central government is worried about. Well, they can prevent that if they ultimately control the the purse strings and write the checks. Right. Yeah. And in, in the essay, you differentiate exactly as you said between political decentralization and economic decentralization. So, if there's more of a political decentralization going on, I guess that means the the main state, the one that's trying to deter secession, secessionist sentiments or secession in general. I guess they're kind of just throwing what like you know a few bones their way at that point right okay you can control maybe this or that and 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 like you said be in charge of symbolic things but but ultimately they don't want any sort of economic power being delegated down to a lower level yeah you can have your own elections you can administer your own programs maybe we'll even let you administer a whole lot of things your healthcare system your education system your transportation but ultimately we the central government will be writing the checks and so you'll ultimately do what we want. Um, so really, political decentralization, as I defined in that paper, isn't isn't really decentralization at all, you could argue, um, or it's uh, it's a limited form of decentralization. And so a lot of the a lot of the federations around the world really aren't decentralized in that way. right If we're talking about Germany right, or right. Austria or um, you know Italy, Spain, right these are countries that, um, have moved toward federalism uh, or have become officially federal, but they're they're really not decentralizing that economic power. So you, you shuffle around a few responsibilities and, and call it something that'll quell some sort of rebellion, but ultimately you're not you're not handing those purse strings over, which is obviously a, a huge element, right? Exactly. And then later on in, the, in that essay, you even wrote that uh, you said states prioritize secession deterrence over economic efficiency. So I guess that, that's kind of something that falls out of this as a problem, right? Yeah, and we especially see this in the developing world, where in uh, places like India and Indonesia, um, not only do central governments try to limit the financial autonomy of the of the local governments, um, but they'll even <laughs> allow local governments some economically perverse forms of autonomy, like their ability to control in migration and prevent um, you know people from other parts of the same country from moving in. Uh, in Indonesia, there they even allow some. Uh, some degree of trade barriers uh, between uh, the provinces. So they won't allow the the type of decentralization that could be economically productive, but they will allow this kind of protectionism uh, that uh, that is economically harmful because, again, that could maybe um, quell some of this nationalist secessionist support that might be coming from minority groups that are worried about being swamped by... Um, migrants coming in from other parts of the, of the country. So in some cases, the state bending over backwards to either quell some secessionist sentiments, prevent a secessionist movement, and basically just make whatever group is making the most noise happy, that can ultimately affect the greater good in an economic sense in the long run, ultimately. Although a lot of the times they'll charge their rhetoric with the idea of, you know, a unified Canada or unified UK or whatever is better for the economy. As you said, that might not actually be the case. Yeah, that's right. And um, you know, if the if the sacrifices that the central government is making to to keep that unity um, are s- sufficiently perverse, um, yeah, unity could be could be worse than separation. Um, you know, I think it's it also speaks to the problem that scholars for a long time have noted that. Well, there are all these theoretical benefits that federalism could have, but when we look at actual federal countries, they don't seem to have a lot of these economic benefits. Well, the reason for it is that federalism is usually designed badly. <laughs> it's usually <laughs> it's usually not um, not an economically efficient form of federalism. But there is this more economically efficient form of federalism that we that we have in textbooks and that we have some uh, limited historical examples uh, of, like pre, uh, pre-1930s United States, um, and to some degree, uh, Canada and Switzerland even today. Uh, but um, but it's not a, not a popular model. Can you name a few elements of that sort of well-done uh, federalism or decentralization of certain powers that, that you're referring to? Yeah. So this model of federalism is sometimes called competitive or dual federalism. And the idea there is that to the greatest extent possible, the federal government and the regional governments have different policy responsibilities. Um, so you don't have these complex, arcane mechanisms whereby the federal government sets some standards and provides some money to regional governments who then administer the program, and the federal government can then 
um, you know, check up on them, right? That that sort of model that has become more common uh, in both Canada and the U.S., but especially the U.S., uh, doesn't really, you know, is, it, it makes it difficult for voters to determine who is actually responsible for a policy, mm-hmm. uh, but it also makes it so that regional governments have less financial accountability uh, and you know they're not they're not as accountable to taxpayers and and voters because their funding is coming from you know central government taxes and and so they don't have an incentive really to to keep spending under control. Um, but if you can separate those policy responsibilities and give regional governments control over their own tax bases so that they can um, you know raise their own taxes for their own programs and vary the rates of their own taxes so that you have different tax burdens in different mm-hmm. parts of the country so that voters can actually and, and taxpayers and uh, residents can actually choose do I want more services and higher taxes or do I want um, you know fewer services and, and lower taxes uh, that that is the kind of model that could actually be um, economically advantageous yeah and it's quite interesting too because sometimes when I talk to some of my friends from the US that maybe aren't as familiar with the way the Canadian system is actually structured of course it's not perfect but one thing that kind of does blow their minds is when I like okay so putting aside transfer payments and some funding shuffling at the federal level put that aside for a sec but at the end of yeah. the day in constitutionally speaking, the provinces are responsible for something like education and education being like a full provincial issue. And we're not, you know, spending two years of campaigning talking about federal funding where a federal department is in charge of education. So that's very interesting to some people. It's hard for them to fathom that sometimes. So it is an interesting example. Canada, in some areas, is very much like that. That's right. Um, securities regulation, right? So uh, Americans are surprised when they learn that there is no Canadian analog to the SEC, that that's right. all done at the the provincial level um, because you know, they just can't fathom that. Oh, that's a it's a different kind of model. Um, you know, even even healthcare, even though the, mm-hmm. the Canadian government does have some role there. You know, the vast majority of Americans, they think of there's a Canadian healthcare system. Well, they exactly. don't, they yeah. don't realize it's actually provincial. Right. Like I have, like I have an Ontario health insurance card. I don't have a Canadian, you know, federally centralized right. health insurance exactly. card. Right. So that, yeah, it's pretty interesting. At, at one time when you came um, for a talk at the ILS, you were invited to speak on a radio show in Alberta, the, one of the ones I mentioned earlier. Uh, listeners will put the, uh, the link in the episode notes. Uh, on that radio show, you said every government has different rules for secession and trying to gain independence. Um, can you give us some examples of different uh, countries and, and what kind of procedures they have for some uh, state, province, or group to actually become recognized as a state onto itself? Of course, you don't need to go through an exhaustive list, but maybe make some differentiations here. Of course, there's not one way to, to run a secessionist movement and get there. Yeah, so um, at one extreme, you have... Uh, s- states whose nation national states whose uh, constitutions actually prohibit secession by defining the country as indivisible. Um, so even if the government of the day, the central government of the day, wanted to allow secession, presumably it would be unconstitutional for them to do so. Um, and so Spain, France, Italy are examples of Western countries that that have constitutional provisions to this effect. And um, Interestingly, I find that those countries both uh, suffer more secessionist violence than countries that don't have uh, such constitutional provisions, and they're less likely to decentralize power to secessionist regions uh, than uh, than countries that are not indivisible, right? That that are where where there's you know some room there for secession to be negotiable. Um, presumably, they think well. You know, we can just resort to force to keep uh, regions within the country, so we don't have to come to a compromise with uh, regional independence movements. Uh, then you have countries that um, where where secession is not um, fully legal necessarily, but where it's negotiable. And Canada, I think, would fit here, where the the Supreme Court has has ruled that. Um, if there were a clear majority on a clear question for independence, you know, coming a case coming out of Quebec, that the federal government would have to negotiate um, with Quebec in good faith, and that ultimately independence is a possible outcome of that process, although it would require a constitutional amendment. Um, and you know, the federal government tried to uh, sort of take it back a little bit by um, passing the Clarity Act uh, to. Right. 
to say that, oh, we get to define what's a, what's a clear majority on a clear question, but that's never been litigated and we don't know whether um, the Clarity Act would actually stand up in, in court. Um, so Canada, I think, is a case where secession is um, in principle negotiable. And so governments have some incentive to actually pay attention to provincial independence movements and not simply ignore them. Right. You know, then moving a little bit further out along the spectrum, you get um, countries like uh, the United Kingdom, where um, the, the position of the British government has been for, for decades now that um, the constituent countries of the United Kingdom, they call them countries when they're not independent states, uh, Scotland, Wales, and England, Northern Ireland's a special case, um, they have the right to gain independence. And um, to do that, they need to negotiate a referendum with the British government. And there's now a kind of... Um, series of agreements that uh, that the British government has reached with Scotland. They've created a kind of custom now that independence referendums uh, should occur roughly once a generation, unless there's some um, radical change in the constitutional structure that would require a, um, you know, a sooner referendum. Um, the Scottish National Party is arguing that uh, that Brexit constitutes such a such a radical break, but um, um, but the the current uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's not buying it. Uh, so that's um, so that's an approach. So it, it would be every once every generation, and it would be 50% plus one. Whoever gets the majority in this referendum, um, that is the the decision, and so it, it's legally binding. Um, so it's a it's a an approach that that makes secession. Um, more legal than not. It's it's not only negotiable, it's expected to be negotiated. And there's no pre-existing legal framework uh, for doing this, so it has to be done new every time uh, that a referendum is to be held. But it goes very far toward making this a kind of legal process. And then finally, at the um, for this sort of liberal extreme uh, approach towards secession, you could actually um, pass a law or even write into the Constitution some procedure for regions to gain independence. And uh, we don't see this very often, but we do see it in two places today. Uh, the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis, which are <laughs> two Caribbean islands. Uh, Nevis is the smaller one. And the constitution of that country says that Nevis has the right to secede if it gets a two-thirds vote in a referendum. And so it held a referendum a few years ago, which it got a 60% vote, and so the referendum failed. And then the Ethiopian constitution also provides for its uh, states uh, the right to, to gain independence, although um, Ethiopia is sort of a semi-authoritarian country where the, the ruling parties kind of held power in, in regional parliaments um, through a combination of uh, bribery and fraud. So, so uh, that, that constitutional provision is sort of a dead letter there for now. Um, in the past, um, Serbian Montenegro was briefly a country after Yugoslavia broke up. Um, there was this thing called the Union of Serbia and Montenegro, and they had a constitutional provision. Either Serbia or Montenegro could leave by a 55% vote in a referendum, and Montenegro actually did so and became independent. So we do have that kind of um, approach, and we have had, in fact, two peaceful secessions in Western democracies. Um, one was the secession of Norway from Sweden, uh, which uh, I believe the referendum was in 1904 and the actual independence date was 1905. Uh, and the other one was Iceland uh, from Denmark in 1918. Uh, so it has happened, but uh, a point that I make is that it's interesting and it hasn't happened uh, since the development of the modern welfare state. Um, so even though a lot of Western democracies do make secession legal or negotiable in some way, it still seems very, very difficult to get independence. And maybe part of that is that a lot of people are um, either have self-interest involved in keeping ties to the central government um, or a lot of loyalty to the central government because of um, the way the, the welfare state uh, makes um, 
citizens feel more dependent. Right, yeah. You do, and you also mentioned that in the other radio show I was referring to. You said that there is a lot more loyalty to central states today, so that's part of the problem as to why maybe some secessionist movements can't gain enough traction. But the word you said at the end of your sentence there strikes a little more like true to me, and I'm not really sure. Like The dependence factor, is it really that... I mean, of course, we can think of some examples of people that are extremely loyal to the state itself and you know are anti-secessionist, but... but would you not think it's more of a dependence factor that people say, okay, well, if, the, if you know, as an example, Alberta leaves Canada, such and such is going to happen economically speaking, whether it's true or not, they at least believe it and they feel their livelihood depends on it or some sort of social service is going to go away. I guess what I'm trying to get is this less sort of like a, yeah. a loyalty extreme that you would have seen like in the early 1900s and more of a dependence thing. Yeah, some of it may be just pure self-interest or the checks might stop coming if uh, right. if, uh, <laughs> if we have independence. And so I, I can't let that happen. So I voted my self-interest. I think some of it by loyalty, I'm, I'm maybe not um, – you know, I, I think the um, – the better word there might be something like reciprocity or a feeling mm. of reciprocity. Okay, okay. There is some research that um, uh, families receiving assistance during the New Deal were more likely to um, send their sons to volunteer in World War II uh, in the United States. So, um, you know, I think maybe some of this could could be something other than sort of narrow self-interest, but a sense that well you know what, um, this program seems to be working pretty well. I'm benefiting from it. So the federal government can't be all bad and maybe I owe something to them. Uh, right. so it's, it's less like that, that fierce nationalistic kind of loyalty. That makes a lot of sense. If we put kind of like loyalty on the one side and let's call it an extreme. And on the other hand, let's call it another extreme of, of dependence on the state. Like in yeah. the middle, you have this sort of idea that they're okay. At least people feel that there's like a mutually beneficial arrangement that's happening. Right. And it, it does speak to the original liberal worry about the welfare state, right? Which right. is that, you know, we do want to raise people out of poverty and give people access to opportunity, but will they, you know, become dependent? Will they become, um, you know, less willing to, um, to buck the political trends of the day or, or to, to stand up to, to the government as a result of getting these, um, these payments and services. And there does seem to be some truth to that worry. A lot of the economists like Milton Friedman, for instance, you talk about like a welfare trap on an individual level, uh, but maybe there's a welfare state trap on a secessionist level, right? Yeah, definitely. Also on the, on the same show that I was referring to earlier, you said that there is a thought by many that in a globalized world, being a smaller independent nation makes a lot of political and economic sense. There's actually merit to this idea. Can you go into that a little bit? Right. So as the the world gets more globalized, economically speaking, we might actually see um, that it gets less globalized, politically speaking, or starts to fragment more politically speaking, because if you can trade with the rest of the world as a small country, um, maybe you don't need to be part of a big country in order to have access to a large internal market. So in the in the days when especially the, the sort of interwar period in the 20th century when um, international trade was breaking down and you had basically these trading blocks that were um, either just single countries or the British Commonwealth or things like that, that, that were not trading globally. Maybe you need access to that market and it's dangerous to go it alone. Um, so this is a, an argument that a lot of economists have made. And there seems to be some truth to it. Certainly, there's a stylized fact that as international trade has gone up since World War II, the, so has the number of countries. But I think um, the other point I would make as a, as a political scientist is that really you need um, some kind of uh, stable institutions for trade for countries to feel comfortable um, breaking away and gaining their independence. So you need things like the World Trade Organization or NAFTA or the European Union to provide that stability. Because even if you, you have international trade rising, if um, your trade advantages depend on throwing your weight around diplomatically, like in the 19th century, right, the first era of globalization, yeah, trade was rising, but it was a, a, it was a world of great power competition, right? And you had to be a big country in order to gain advantages from trading agreements. Otherwise, you basically had to take what you were given. Right. Um, so it's that multilateral trading order that makes um, secession 
more viable nowadays. See, it's a really interesting point you brought up a little earlier as well, because I there's some people I know that uh, I'm just thinking of the kinds of things they believe in my head, but they would maybe be a proponent of a smaller uh, state as a result of a secession from Canada or a state seceding from the United States. But on the other side, they truly believe that sort of these international institutions like the UN or like the WTO cause lots of problems and that nobody should be involved with them. And basically, they, they just really dislike them. But it's interesting there you say that uh, whether they like it or not, these types of institutions and infrastructures and frameworks might actually be more beneficial to a smaller state starting out after a secession rather than uh, detrimental. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, a lot of these secessionists around the world, they don't have a passion for controlling their own trade policy um, or for, you know, controlling um, capital controls or even monetary policy usually. Um, You know, they want to control fiscal, regulatory policies, cultural policies, um, maybe even some some foreign policy in terms of like tr- uh, war and diplomacy and things like that. But but there's no um, there's no reason for most of them to hold on to the autonomy that you would get from withdrawing from all of these multilateral trading arrangements. Right? You pay an economic cost. You pay a cost in terms of political stability and right, the, and the the idea that you can have access to a stable trading order in the future um, for an autonomy that doesn't that isn't all that valuable. Um, so it's interesting that where these debates over secession have gone the furthest in places like Quebec, you actually do see that secessionists have very strong support for multilateral trading institutions. So. Um, back when NAFTA was being debated in the in the early 1990s, um, the province that supported uh, NAFTA this, the strongest was Quebec. Um, even though Quebec has a strong labor movement, you would think it'd be pretty skeptical of trade. Um, you know what happened is that a lot of a lot of people on the left who would otherwise have been skeptical of of NAFTA came on board because they saw it as a necessary evil to help. Um, you know provide the basis for Quebec maybe to become an independent member right. of of that uh, of that trading arrangement. All right. Well, we're about at the halfway point now, actually a little over. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. I'm talking with Jason Sorens. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jason Sorens. So, Jason, uh, we spent a lot of time at the beginning of our uh, chat talking about secessionism in general and some factors that either aggravate it or mitigate it. Or, and uh, uh, we built a loose framework for the rest of our discussion. But let's talk about Alberta specifically in Canada here. So let's jump in. You've said that the Alberta secessionist movement is more serious at this point in time. And what signs do you point to this? Yeah, I mean, so there's a, a grassroots movement uh, for... Wexit. Um, there's uh, um, a revived um, Alberta Independence Party. There was a, there had been a, a small Alberta Independence Movement back in the 80s, and it sort of fell apart. Some of the leaders were right. a little bit extreme, um, and some of the causes of Western alienation faded with the the unification of the Conservative Party uh, of Canada and uh, and its successes at the federal level. Um, but definitely there's been a, a revival of interest in the last uh, year or two, and in, in particular in the last few months, it seems as if um, more newspaper columnists and radio hosts and people like that seem to be taking it seriously and actually talking about it. And it seems to be a result of the the liberal policies toward energy in particular and the economic costs that Alberta has faced as a result of that, as well as just general ideological differences that were pre-existing between Alberta's um, sort of um, small-c conservative majority and um, you know the government of, of Justin Trudeau. So 
uh, that has that's definitely um, caused, I think, a, a revival of, of interest, and people are starting to talk about whether it could happen, and if so, how. No, and I think, yeah, definitely, like, as a Canadian, I do feel that the discussion is certainly a lot more lively and, and around than, than it was before. And and by discussion, I mean le- legitimate discussion. Uh, like, of course, there's always going to be certain people screaming and yelling and caps locking on Twitter. But at the end of the day, you're, there there is a broader discussion about this now. You can actually find articles with people on both sides of the issue reasoning through those sorts of discussions and presenting their case as opposed to just limiting and down to slogans. So it's definitely more, more alive than it was even a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of what's driving people's different takes on this issue uh, is how um, how big is your discount rate of the future, right? So if you, mm. if you value the future highly to the present, um, then maybe you're willing to go through short-term pain for long-term gain. Right. Uh, but if you don't, then you look at the, the short-term costs that are inevitable for um, any kind of secession in, in today's world, and you say, well, clearly, it, it, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but, you know, if, again, if, if you go back to this idea that, well, I'm thinking a generation out, um, then, you know, the, the, the short-term pain that we experience, yes, there are going to be some transition costs, but maybe over the long run, this is the right thing to do. Um, and then you have people who are kind of in the middle, um, right. but say, Things like, you know, this is something I heard from someone when I was out there. Um, you know, I'm, I don't really support Alberta independence, but I would like for there to be a strong Alberta independence movement. <laughs> ah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> right? Because they, they want that as the kind of, um, you know, negotiating tool right? with, with Ottawa. Okay. You know, you can either give us these concessions or you can talk to the Wexit folks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think you've mentioned before. I've heard you say offhand that like, although a, a secession might not actually happen, there are some benefits that can be derived from such a movement. And I guess that's what that person was kind of getting at, right? That's right. Although the the key qualifier I'd make is that the movement has to be sincere because if it's if you just try to do this strategically, it's pretty easy to figure out, right? It's hard to organize a mass movement of of many thousands of people where you're telling them all, "Hush, don't don't say that we." really don't want this just you know pretend to want this right? <laughs> <laughs> and there's really not much evidence that uh um that this kind of thing has happened in in other places right that that um that you have these insincere purely strategic secessionist movements because we do see that secessionism is stronger and people vote for it where it makes more economic sense right so it tends to be in the in the richer regions or regions that are geographically separate from the rest of the country or that um, that are bigger, more viable as independent states. That's where people are more willing to support pro-independence parties. All of that suggests that people are making a kind of rational calculation about the costs and benefits of independence. At least some people are not necessarily all voters or even most voters, but mm-hmm. you know the sort of elites, as in the political science term, right? People who kind of drive the political conversation. They're the ones who are thinking about this um, you know, instrumentally and, and rationally in that kind of limited sense. Um, and so you really, in order to, to have this ability to, to go in and, and negotiate and say, well, if you don't do this, we might secede, that, that really has to be an option for you. Right? If, right. if it's clearly something that's not going to make any sense, that's, that threat is meaningless. Right. It, or, or at the very least, it can't be an easy bluff to call, right? You have to have everyone in cahoots with the idea. It's just a game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And before, you've talked about signs to watch for when, when the discussion does get more serious. And you, and you said, well, one of the surefire signs is that if a political party wins more seats or gains traction, and obviously I, I'm assuming you're applying this case, it could be a single issue political party or a political party that centers a lot of its issues around secession. But once you see those sort of trends, it's it's pretty much, as you were saying before, not, not really a bluff, but, but that's when it gets serious that it actually is an option on the table. That's right, because a political party has a, a manifesto that they present at election, and if they win a majority of seats, right, they have this mandate uh, to pursue that manifesto, and that could be holding a referendum, right? So right. if you're not a secessionist, you don't want to vote for a secessionist political party that says, you know, we're going to hold a referendum if we get a majority because that just might happen. Uh, and, and it has happened. So, you know, it could be a new political party or it could be an existing political party that puts this into their manifesto. Um, and that's when you start to, to see that this is a, a real option because, 
a provincial government can actually do things, right? It can right. do things unilaterally, and it may not be able to achieve independence unilaterally, but it can uh, put this on the agenda unilaterally. You said before that Alberta lacks some specifics that other independence movements have. And I think one of the examples you quickly offered, for instance, was like a, a distinctive cultural element, like like a language. Um, so why don't you elaborate a, a bit more? And that was I don't think that was the only thing that you were thinking of when you mentioned that and when I heard you say that. So so what do you mean that there are some specifics uh, that Alberta doesn't have that other independence movements have? All the really strong independence movements that we see in the Western world have one of two things, either a distinctive regional language that's spoken by a large number of people in the region uh, not necessarily a majority, but a large number, um, or uh, a history of recent independence that they can point to that uh, that might be undergirding their national identity. And so there aren't um, a whole lot of people right now who would think of Alberta as a nation in the same way that, speaking of Quebec as a nation, is now uh, second nature. In right. fact, I guess official <laughs> Canadian policy, right, since Stephen Harper. Um, mm-hmm. So... Um, so that's that's the main hurdle that Alberta faces. I mean, we have seen other secessionist movements in places that do not have this kind of national identity. I mean, there's been an Alaska independence party that has gained support at various times in Alaska. And, you know, there's um, there's the, the northern Italian independence movement that was really big for a long time with the, the Lega Nord or Northern League uh, that in the in the late 90s really broke onto the scene, mm-hmm. supporting independence for something they called Padania, which would have been the whole sort of northern region of Italy. Uh, and, you know, parts of, parts of northern Italy do have that kind of national identity, especially Veneto, the region around Venice, because Venice was independent for so long, and um, it kind of has its own language, depending on whether you call it a language or a dialect. But other parts of the North did not really have that. And yet it it spawned this movement that won, you know, a quarter of the votes uh, in the region and, and really put this on the agenda. Now, of course, the Northern League has uh, has dropped the Northern. It's just Lega, and it's a national Italian party. It's just sort of a kind of right-wing anti-immigration party and uh, it's lost that um that support for independence or even really a regional agenda anymore but you know that's that's kind of the closest example from from recent years and of course if you go back long enough you could talk about well the U- what about the u.s civil war not really an example i think that secessionists want to <laughs> to hearken back to. <laughs> right so remember that remember that right but there you get an example of an independence movement that seemed to be driven uh, mostly by economic considerations and, and ideological considerations. Um, although even there, I think you had a history of, of these states as independent colonies um, and this idea that the U.S. was a kind of joining together of these, these independent communities that retained their own identities. And that um, was a big part of, of what um, you know, allowed, uh, allowed secessionism to gain a gain a foothold there. So, so that's a, 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 perhaps a struggle for Alberta, but Alberta does also have some uh, unique features that make a secessionist movement more likely. I do find that geographic distance from the national capital, you know, by which I mean the central government's capital, um, that correlates with support for secessionist movements. And so Alberta is pretty far from, you know, Edmonton's pretty far from Ottawa, um, you know, and, and that, bespeaks a certain kind of cultural distance as well uh that you know maybe they're it's more about people's mindsets or their way of life um that's different from much of the rest of the country Mm -hmm. Uh, i already talked about the ideological difference between alberta and the rest of the country right they're they're farther away in in more ways than one they're literally farther away yeah geographically but also ideologically as you're saying yeah absolutely and you know ideology i i suspect this is going to matter more and more uh to to these types of movements um because of everything that the modern state does and how important it is that um you know these ideological and political issues for some people can be almost all consuming and and that's that's where they find their tribe right their tribe isn't defined by language anymore it's defined by their beliefs about government and their um their partisanship in many cases so uh so we might see that in future ideological difference really is as much of a driver of independence as, as things like um, a different language used to be. Um, Alberta is very rich compared to the rest of the country. It's a net uh, donor 
to uh, the Canadian federal government. Um, so it's in fact one of the biggest net donor regions in the in the Western world. Um, so that's another reason why uh, you could see some economic benefit to independence. But more than just an economic benefit to independence, I think you you really see um, this kind of um, you know donor province mentality foster um, an independence movement when that um, is seen as unjust exploitation, right? When it, when it seems that we're working harder, we're paying a higher cost of living for the benefit of people who are corrupt, right? For politicians, for, you know, for an ineffective central government. And that's something you did have in Northern Italy, right? And one of the most effective campaigns of the Northern League was um, the, these... Uh, these post, this uh, Roma ladrona campaign, <laughs> Rome the thief, right? That that uh, that the government of Italy is corrupt. Um, they're stealing from us, and it's unjust, right? And so that's how you make it not about self-interest, but about justice. And that's what tends to motivate people, what people are willing to vote for. And that ties in nicely, actually, in the next thing I was going to talk to you about, which is you've mentioned before that one thing that Alberta's secessionist movement does have in its recipe that is going for it is this sort of idea of fear and confidence, right? Like fear of the current regime, but confidence in the idea that they could have a better one unto themselves. So I thought that was very interesting the way you put that. Yeah, that's not original to me. That fear confidence framing actually comes from uh, Stéphane Dion, the uh, the uh, former, uh, or is he currently in government? I don't know. At, at one point, he was in, in in Justin Trudeau's government as a as a liberal minister. He was a political scientist by training, and right. in the '90s, he wrote this article: "Why is secession difficult in well-established democracies?" You know, he had noticed this the same thing that I have, and he he put it as this fear confidence dilemma that you need to have fear in the status quo, but confidence in the future. And he said that that is really rare, right? That if you're fearful of the present, you're probably fearful of the future. If you're confident of the future, you're probably confident of the present. Mm. Um, so you really need to have that kind of conjunction of factors. And I think you you probably do have that in Alberta right now because the economy is doing badly and you can trace it to, um, in part to, to liberal policies. Um, but you can imagine that if those policies were changed, Alberta would do a lot better. And the international audience, so liberal policies, real quick, guys, capital L, liberal party yeah, policies, yeah. not like lowercase L, liberal economic policy, just to clarify. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, some, some, uh, uh, yeah, some equivocation we're doing in, in this talk here. Right, but yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> so yeah, so the, 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 the worry for Alberta, I think, is that if this economic downturn lasts long enough, it could undermine that confidence and independence, right? And and uh, and make people worry. Well, if uh, I mean, this is this is what anti-secessionists say. They'll say, well, if liberal policies can damage us this much um, as a province, couldn't they do the same as if we were an independent state, right? Couldn't they try to to block our pipelines and things like that? And and so this debate goes on, and right, the pro-secessionists will say, well, no, there's this. Um, you know, there's international law that means that they have to allow transit uh, through, um, and if they don't allow transit through, then we won't. We will. We'll seal off British Columbia from the rest of Canada, right? And so, and so that's the kind of <laughs> right. back, and, back and forth that I saw when I when I visited. So, so at the end of the day, when it comes to Alberta secessionists, I've, I've heard you say that ultimately the most likely scenario is that there will be lots of talk of secession. There will be support for secession, but it's likely not to fully happen. So, so why do you think yeah. there will ultimately just be talk? Well, I think they're starting from virtually zero. And usually these things take uh, te- take decades to come to fruition. And so the Scottish National Party is founded in 1932 and uh, you know, ultimately holds, uh, holds an independence referendum in 2014, right? So it's 80 years later. So <laughs> yeah. A little bit more than one generation. <laughs> right. Um, and... Uh, you know, there it's not as if conditions are perfect for for independence in Alberta, right? Uh, it doesn't have sea access. It doesn't have this um, pre-existing national identity. So, um, I think it'll be a conversation. It will grow gradually, and and people need to take it seriously first before they're willing to vote for it, and to make it enough of an issue that they're going to put it in party manifestos. They're going to want to see what what happens with the the current efforts of the. Um, Albertan provincial government to uh, to come up with um, solutions for federation and and promote them to other provinces and and try to get something done. Um, 
you know, so I I'm not uh, I'm not terribly confident that um, that anything would happen under um, under the current Canadian uh, government, um, the the Liberal government of Justin Trudeau, because there's um, there's not really much of an incentive for a government that's sort of on the center left to make a lot of concessions to a government that's definitely on the right. Um, you know, when I've my research on when decentralization happens is it tends to be when the central government is controlled by a party that thinks it's strong in the region that's gaining new autonomy, right? So it's the, the British Labour government that gives autonomy to Scotland and Wales because those regions were controlled by Labour, right? They, right. They thought, well, we'll win these elections. And, and so even if we lost power at the, at the, uh, in Westminster at the British uh, level, central level, uh, we would still have control over these autonomous governments. So this is sort of a win-win for us. Um, and of course, later they, they they lost power, but they didn't anticipate that. Right. Um, so so I, I don't think we're gonna you're gonna see um, Justin Trudeau's government making significant concessions to Alberta. But maybe it happens if you got a future conservative government. And in that way, an independence movement can have an impact, even if. It never succeeds in gaining independence, even if it never succeeds in gaining control over a provincial government. So, so what other uh, kinds of things need to happen in the political climate for an actual separation to occur? Is, is it really just down to the idea of having, let's say, a federal party and a provincial party that are more or less you know, politically aligned than they are now? Or, or are there other things that you would throw into that mix and say, here's other parts of the climate that would need to exist? Well, if they're politically aligned, I think you would see decentralization. You'd see accommodation. You'd see a compromise, and the issue would die back. Um, okay. But yeah, so I think it's when you when they're not aligned that you get the frustrations building up. Um, and if it got to a point where um, you know Albertans who are sort of in the center and the right uh, start to think, well, there's no hope that <laughs> that we can elect, help elect a federal government that's going to be favorable to us, um, that's when you start to see that, that fear-confidence dynamic change right. to such an extent that, hey, we, well, we might as well push for independence then because it's, it's, there's no way it can work out under the status quo. Um, so I, th- I think that's, that's the scenario you need. You need to start to see um, you know, figures who are currently prominent in Albertan politics start to see this is a winning issue for them, that, you know, they can make some hay with this. And, you know, right now the Alberta independence movement is being led by people who are not politically savvy, and some of them may even be, um, you know, have some pretty extreme political views, and that's right. going to alien, alienate people, right? And so I think that's a, a barrier to anything happening in the short term. Um, but if the if the conditions are, are there, if the conditions are right, you're going to start to see mainstream politicians hop on the bandwagon. So ultimately, it needs to be more politically profitable. Our fear index has to be probably a little higher for Alberta to actually leave. And, and as well, as you said, uh, we need to have more savvy politicians that are at the reins for, for things to really work out and to gain more traction is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, look at what happened in Catalonia. So, you know, they had had a small independence movement for a long time and a large kind of minority nationalist autonomist movement. Right, right. Um, and it was only when they, the Spanish Supreme Court struck down their autonomy statute or most of it, um, the um, conservative uh, popular party and, and pro-centralization popular party was in power in Spain, um, that, you know, that fear confidence dynamic really bubbled up and, and support for independence rose in polls. And then gradually these mainstream nationalist politicians got on board with the idea of, of independence, um, and they pursued it. And now I think, you know, Catalonia is not going to become independent in the near future, but, the independence is on the issue there for the duration because of everything that's happened there. You know, you now have this hardcore, at least 40% of the electorate that is locked in for independence and uh, and will be for the foreseeable future. It's it's solidly on the agenda. It's not just like a fleeting thing in time. Exactly. It, it will be on the agenda, you know, for a generation. Do you detect that same sort of trajectory for the Alberta independence movement? Is this something that will maybe go 
up and down like we did talk earlier that there might ultimately be talk and might not ultimately happen but aside from that as an issue on the agenda do you think this is like a three to five year thing or do you see the seeds for this to actually be as you said locked in for a generation yeah i don't think uh i don't think this is going to um you know alberta independence as such is going to be on a mainstream political agenda for a few more years um that that independence movement is going to be on in the background people are going to talk about it but i think you're going to find that provincial politicians are going to be risk averse and they're going to try to pursue other alternatives first. And you're going to try to see this path of negotiation, see what happens with the next federal election. That's, in my view, the most likely uh, scenario. So my final question here to, to wrap everything up, and you can go Canada specific if you'd like, but also take it broader. What should governments ultimately do with secessionist movements? You were talking a bit about this with me on the break, and you said that that'd probably be a good thing to address. So, so I want to give you the opportunity to do that here. What should governments do? Well, I think um, you know we have to be uh, mindful here of of the evidence, which suggests that when governments try to take a, a completely um, blocking hard stance on secession, it leads to lots of problems. It leads, in many cases, to violence. Um, you know, I, I do find that, that governments that try to completely prohibit secession see more secessionist rebellion and violence. Um, even if you don't have violence, though, you'll often have things like general strikes and, and, uh, and road blockages like you had in Catalonia, a lot of economic turmoil, a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen because it all becomes a game of chicken, like who's going to blink, who's going to stand fast. And, um, and that's not what, what businesses want. They want a, a more stable environment for investment. Um, right. So I think the, the best thing you could do is provide a legal framework. Um, and the, a legal framework that all sides view as legitimate um, that is there and available so that when an issue – when this issue comes up, if it ever comes up, you have a, a clear process for dealing with it. And I think that would reduce – the um, the economic and social costs of uh, of these movements because you can't you can't suppress them they're going to happen um, the question is how you channel uh, those passions in a productive way so I think even Canada could do more to provide a clear legal framework because I, I don't think the legal framework for secession is clear in, in Canada right now um, you know in the in the limit you could actually just go ahead and amend the Constitution now to provide some procedure for this to happen. And it doesn't have to be a super easy procedure, right? You could still build in some some safeguards to make sure that you're not holding a referendum every other year and using it as a, as a threat, um, but you still have an opportunity for legitimate grievances to, to be expressed and to, um, to actually make a difference because – you know, there's there's no reason that our current political boundaries in the world should be fixed in stone for eternity uh, if they're no longer serving people's needs. I mean, that's a really good point because uh, one of the lines you'll hear in Canada here for people that are most it'll mostly come from the anti uh, Alberta independence uh, folks, they'll say something like, "Okay, well, fine, maybe they have some grievances, but look, if you want to have an independent province, there is some clarity on how we go about it, but ultimately we got to open up the constitution, we got to do this, we got to do that," and it's like, well. Maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, regardless of your first secession or not. Yeah, let's. Why not deal with it in advance, um, in anticipation of future movements? Maybe Quebec flares up again or something, and and then we have a way of dealing with it um, that that all sides can agree to and 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 have some clear metrics for success. You know, maybe that's maybe that's fifty five percent in a referendum. Maybe it's maybe there's a. a you know, some wording that you actually have to have right. in a referendum, right? So things like that that actually make it um, clear what's going to happen um, and uh, and make it so that, you know, you're going to – you're not going to – if there is a success, if there is a yes vote, we don't end up with this period <laughs> of quandary like, okay, now what? Right. Yeah, but maybe it would be good to have our fire escape plan, you know, before there's an actual fire. Not when, oh, shoot, right. the building's on fire. We better figure out how to get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jason, we've talked about a lot and our time has certainly wound down here. Um, so we always like to bring it full circle and let the guests put a finer point on our exploration of the question uh, here. So I'll toss it back over to you to take us out. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on secessionism in general, but also whether Alberta could separate? Well, I think if we believe in broadly liberal values that government is there to serve the people, then the people can ultimately make fundamental changes to government, and that includes 
in the limit secession. Um, so uh, it's good to have a, a stable legal framework for allowing that. Um, and in Alberta's case, you know, I think there's uh, there are some reasons why uh, many Albertans have grievances, including big ideological differences with Ottawa, um, big uh, fiscal outflows from Alberta to the rest of the country. And um, so Canada can either try to, to negotiate those things um, or you will likely see the independence movement grow. Great. We'll leave it there. Jason Sorens, thank you very much for joining me today on The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.